Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 240. We'll continue in the book of 2 Chronicles with a brief summary of chapters 4 through 7 and follow with some thoughts about the efficiency and peril of depending on one solution. The work on the temple continues. In the courtyard, items of brass, the altar, the sea, a large basin for priests to wash themselves, cast on the back of 12 oxen, 10 washstands, and in the temple, 10 menorahs and 10 tables of gold. In the court of priests and the great court, all the doors are overlaid with gold. Chapter 4 continues, with all the brass implements fashioned by Hiram the Tyrian, and there are many, all of which were cast, quote, in the Jordan plain in molds in the earth between Sukkot and Zreda. The quantities necessary for this were so abundant that, quote, the bronze could not be reckoned. The same was true for the gold. Chapter 5 recounts the final journey of the Ark of the Covenant. With the temple construction complete, the Ark is to be relocated for the last time, to, quote, its place in the inner sanctum of the house, to the Holy of Holies beneath the wings of the cherubim. It's a moment of grand celebration that happened to coincide with the happiest of pilgrimage festivals, Sukkot, and everyone is not only ready to revel, but everyone from the Kohanim priests through the Levite choristers and trumpet players, everyone consecrates themselves for the ensuing party. The chronicler tells us that the temple was, quote, filled with cloud and the priests could not stand up to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of Adonai filled the house of God. Shlomo feasts his eyes on his handiwork in chapter 6 and busts a rhyme, quote, Adonai meant to abide in thick fog. As for me, I have built you a lofty house and a firm place for your dwelling forever. He acknowledges his father's desire to build God a house, but, quote, your son who issues from your loins, he will build the house for my name. And Adonai has fulfilled his word that he spoke. And I arose in place of David, my father, and sat on the throne of Israel as Adonai spoke. And I have built the house for the name of Adonai, God of Israel. That's a bit of a flex, but it seems that Shlomo is all about the flex, especially as he has built a place where the people will come and connect with God directly. He goes on to enumerate the circumstances for such a connection, and I could summarize this list, but it's weird and eclectic, so I'll let Shlomo speak for himself through the chronicler. Quote, Should a man offend against his fellow and bear an oath against him to bring a curse on him, and the oath come before your altar in this house, you will hearken in the heavens and judge your servants to condemn the guilty, to bring down his way on his head, and to vindicate him who is right, to mete out to him according to his righteousness. And if your people Israel are routed by an enemy, for they will have offended against you, and they turn back and acclaim your name and pray and plead before you in this house, you will hearken from the heavens and forgive the offense of your people Israel and bring them back to the land that you gave them and to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, for the Israelites will have, will have offended against you, and they pray and plead before you in this house and acclaim your name, they will turn back from their offense, for you will answer them. You will hearken in the heavens and forgive the offense of your servants, your people Israel, for you will teach them the good way in which they should go, and you will give them rain upon your land that you have given to your people in estate. 
Should there be famine in the land? Should there be plague, blight, or mildew, locusts, caterpillars? Should this, this enemy besiege him in the land and his gates? Any affliction of any disease, any prayer, any plea that any man have in all your people Israel, that every man know his affliction and his pain. He shall spread his palms in this house, and you shall hearken from the heavens, the firm place of your dwelling, and you shall forgive and grant to a man according to all his ways, as you alone know the heart of humankind." so that they may fear you to walk in your ways all the days that they live upon the land that you gave to their fathers. And to the foreigner too, who is not from your people, Israel, and has come from a distant land for the sake of your name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm, and comes and prays in this house, you will hearken from the heavens, from the firm place of your dwelling, and do as all the, the foreigner will call out to you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you, as does your people Israel, and to know that your name has been called on this house that I have built. Should your people go out to battle against its enemies on a way that you have sent them, they shall pray to you through this city, and you have chosen in the house that I have built for your name, and you shall hearken from the heavens to their prayer and to their plea, and you shall do justice for them. Should they offend against you, for there is no man who does not offend, and you are furious with them, and give them to the enemy and their captors, take them off to distant or nearby lands. But they turn back their heart in the land where they were brought captive, and turn back and plead to you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have offended and have done wrong and have been evil. And they turn back to you with all their heart and all their being in the land of their captivity, where they were taken captive. And they pray to you through the land that you gave to their fathers in the city that you chose and the house that I have built for your name. You shall hearken from the heavens, from the firm place of your dwelling, to their prayers and to their pleas, and do justice for them and forgive your people who have offended against you. Shlomo concludes the chapter with the following invocation, quote, And now arise, Adonai God, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests don victory and your faithful ones rejoice in what is good. Adonai, God, do not turn away your anointed ones. Recall the faithful acts of David, your servant. As Shlomo concludes, chapter 7 tells us that, quote, Fire came down from the heavens and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of Adonai filled the house. And the priests could not come into the house, for the glory of Adonai filled the house of Adonai. And all the Israelites were looking on as the fire and the glory of Adonai came down upon the house, and they kneeled with their faces to the ground on the pavement and bowed down, acclaiming Adonai, for he is good and his kindness is forever. Whoa! The dedication of the temple ran concurrent with Sukkot, seven days with an extra day Shmini Atzeret, which literally means the convocation on the 8th, and the hits keep on coming, near offerings, revelry, trumpet blasts. And when the party comes to a close, God appears to Shlomo in the night with the official approval, with an important caveat, quote, if you turn back and forsake my statutes and my commands that I've given to you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, I will uproot you from my land that I gave to you. And this house that I have consecrated to my name, I will fling away from my presence and turn it into a byword and a mockery among all the peoples. And this house that was exalted, all who pass by it will be dismayed and say, why did Adonai do this to this land? And they will say, because they forsook Adonai, God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they held fast to other gods and bowed down to them and served them. Therefore, he has brought upon them all this harm. Damn!
for two millennia, the practice of animal sacrifice was the primary mode of Jewish worship. The Tanakh's third man, Hevel, offered animal sacrifices, as did the first sailor, Noach, generations later. When Avraham, the first Jew, according to tradition, prepared his first sacrifice, the rite was well known and widely practiced for centuries. Even after Moshe led the Jews from Egypt and Yehoshua, Moshe's protege, led the Jews into the promised land of Canaan, the Jews continued to make offerings to God in a portable tabernacle that moved with the Jews and among them. Sacrifice continued through the rise of the monarchy, King Shaul and David, as well as during the construction of God's temple in Jerusalem by David's son Shlomo by the thousands. And spoilers, it continued despite a brief stint in exile until the common era. Near offering is how Jews speak to God and how, according to the Tanakh in general, and here the chronicler in specific, God speaks back. In the book of Leviticus, we get down to some useful specifics, or more appropriately, a useful specific. We find a regulation dictating where one might slaughter and near offer. But that's pretty much it. A quick count reveals that 101 of the Torah's 613 commandments relate to animal sacrifice, but none mention how one must ritually slaughter. I guess that's not so surprising. It may just have been common knowledge. We don't find cooking instructions on the meat we buy from the supermarket. The rabbis call Leviticus Torah Kohanim, or the laws of the priests, because it's emphasis on the priest's role in worship. 51 of the 101 sacrifice-related commandments can be found in Leviticus. Although we don't get the impression from the chronicler it took Shlomo seven years to complete the temple, which had its grand opening in 920 BCE. Coincidentally, it took Shlomo 13 years to finish his palace next door, and I'll let you draw your own conclusions from that. I mean, I am shocked. The proximity of the temple with Shlomo's palace also sent a powerful message to the people. God and the king are neighbors, if not roommates. Unlike God's earlier residence, the tabernacle, which had moved with the Jews as they wandered the desert and also moved among them. But with Shlomo, on the other hand, every Jew would have to come to the king's house to visit God. And when you're in the king's house, you follow the king's rules. Show some respect. However, as I mentioned before, the temple also had other broader functions beyond the symbolic. Now, temple officials would collect taxes. They would redistribute goods. They would manage the national treasury. There's a lot of meaning and money vested in this one building, a lot of eggs in one basket. And as we know, having one basket is at once very efficient, but also very perilous if you slip. As we've mentioned before, Shlomo's temple, though designed as the connection point between God and humans, was not exceptional in two important ways. First, based on findings in Syria, it seems that the temple's three-room structure with flanking columns at the entrance was a common pagan temple design. Second, from discoveries in Israel, it seems that there were other functioning temples to God in both the northern and southern kingdoms. This is surprising, perhaps, and spoilers, it might have softened the blow later when the temple was destroyed, but when the majority of Jews were marched off into exile, they were confronted by a disaster whose enormity was incalculable. As seasoned smartphone users, we are well accustomed to our service going down for an hour or eight or 12. But back in the early days, say February 2008, sometime around 3 p.m. on Monday the 11th, 
research and motion servers based in Waterloo, Ontario, went down for three hours and hundreds of thousands of users could not receive calls or emails. The media was awash with reports of feckless, unmoored users oscillating wildly between irritability and anguish. And only after three hours. I'm dying. Now imagine that the temporary blackout was permanent. Imagine the confusion and disorientation coupled with a sense of dislocation and disconnection from friends and the world. For the Jews, they experience all this as well as a more daunting remoteness from God. For as long as any living Jew could remember, they had always communed with God in their own land, be it at local worship sites or the temple. It was as if the land itself provided a conduit to the divine, and now that connection was lost. If the Jews called, would God answer them in Babylonia, or would roaming charges apply? As we've read in earlier books of the Tanakh, the prophets said God would answer. For as long as the Jews called and repented their sins, God would answer. And even better, after a sufficient time in chastising exile, God would gather up his people and return them to their homeland and restore the temple. During this period, known as Galut Bavel, or the Babylonian exile, necessity, convenience, and acclamation drove many changes in Jewish life. In 48 short years, the Jews would change Judaism. Some of the changes were cosmetic, ad hoc, and short-term, while others took deep root in Jewish consciousness and persist into the present day. The biggest one addressed the basket that used to hold all the eggs. The exiled Jews created what we today would call synagogues. They called them Beit Tfilah, House of Prayer. We don't have any physical evidence of such institutions and scant reference in traditional sources. Mention of synagogues, passing ones at that, appear in the writings of individuals generally not associated with the traditional Jewish canon. First century writers Philo of Alexandria and Josephus and the New Testament authors of the Gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles, which come from the late 2nd century CE. But even from this period of record that is late Hellenistic to early Roman, there is spotty physical evidence of synagogues. One can count the significant finds from this period on one hand. There's the Theodotus inscription from the 1st century CE, and the edifices in Delos from the 2nd or 1st century BCE, and Ostia from the 4th century CE. Combine all of this scattered evidence with the epigraphical evidence from Egypt, Cyrene, the catacombs in Rome, and 1st century CE Asia Minor, and one could comfortably conclude that by the dawn of the 1st millennium CE, synagogues were common all over Palestine and the Jewish diaspora. And depending on whom you ask, we might have the Jews of Babylonia and their Beit Tfilah to thank for this powerful innovation in Jewish life. This innovation, along with the second Babylonian innovation, the Torah as a single scroll, would provide the Jewish people with two key tools for survival for centuries to come. So when the temple was rebuilt again in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, although near offerings were brought back online and the basket was set up again to receive all the eggs, these changes in Jewish living continued and rooted deep in tradition when the Great Revolt broke out against Rome in 67 CE, and Jerusalem was eventually sacked by the forces of Titus three years later. There was some attempts in the traditional literature to set up Galut Roma, or Roman exile of Judean Jews, as a parallel to what happened after the destruction of the first temple, but we know from history that the destruction did not reflect the actual experience of Jews living throughout the Roman Empire. 
While it's traditionally understood that as the temples smoldered, Jews were sent packing, by some accounts, there were about three times as many Jews living outside of Judea as there were within its borders in the period leading up to the outbreak of violence in 67 CE. Jews lived in all the major cities in the Mediterranean basin, including Alexandria and Rome, and settled in large numbers in Syria, Asia Minor, and Babylonia. These Jews lived where they did by choice. The Talmud recounts how the rabbis, specifically Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, saved Judaism while Jerusalem still burned by reconstituting the Sanhedrin in a small town on the coast. This old new body would legislate and lead the Jewish people, though there probably wasn't much of a rabbinic movement to speak of in the decades post-destruction. For those intervening years, there were scattered, loosely connected Batei Din, Jewish courts, across the Judean landscape. The Romans didn't seize all Jewish landholdings, nor did they forcibly expel the Jewish population from Judea. This would happen after the failed second run at the Romans under Bar Kokhba in 135 CE, when Tinius Rufus, according to 4th century church historian Eusebius, quote, enslaved the territory of the Jews. However, we see an acknowledgement that perhaps we should not put all of our eggs in one basket any longer. The Talmud embodies this acknowledgement in Ben Zakkai, who now, as head of the Sanhedrin, issues a series of edicts about decentralizing certain temple-only customs. There's also this exchange in Avot de Rabbi Natan, a Jewish Agadic work, composed somewhere between 700 to 900 years after the destruction. Ben Zakkai and his disciple Rabbi Yoshua ben Hananiah were leaving Jerusalem, and quote, They beheld the temple in ruins. Said Rabbi Yoshua, Woe unto us that this place, the place where the iniquities of Israel were atoned for, is in ruins. Said Rabbi Yochanan to him, My son, be not aggrieved. We have another atonement that is like it. And what is it? It is acts of loving kindness, as it is said, For I desire chesed, mercy, not sacrifice. Say what now? Ben Zakkai asserts that chesed, acts of loving kindness, are another atonement? Here's another example from Mishnah Peah, chapter 1, Mishnah 1. Quote, These are the things that have no measure. The Peah, corner of the field. The first fruits, the appearance at the temple in Jerusalem on pilgrimage festivals, acts of kindness, and the study of Torah. These are the things, the fruits of which a man enjoys in this world, while the principle remains for him in the world to come, honoring father and mother, acts of kindness, and bringing peace between a man and his fellow. But the study of Torah is equal to them all. The first part of this Mishnah lists commandments, then adds that the more one does, the better. The second part speaks of the very long-term and future reward. For a post-destruction Jew interested in a better life and afterlife, the list of mitzvot poses an interesting challenge. Two of the listed mitzvot could not possibly be fulfilled without a temple. Why then would the post-destruction Mishnah include them? Were the Tanaitic authors absent from school the day they learned about the temple's destruction? Furthermore, bringing of the first fruits, as stated explicitly in the Torah, ensures God's bounty. Could it go unfulfilled without serious consequences? To address this religious and agricultural problem, the rest of the list rushes in to fill the breach, specifically the mitzvot that appear on both lists, acts of kindness and Torah study. In other words, Acts of kindness and Torah study get you a much bigger bang for your mitzvah buck. They are mitzvot 
that need no tempo, and even better, yield rewards in this world and the next. Why settle for less? The Tosefta, or an additional learning about this Mishnah in Peah, takes the rabbinic recalibration, or perhaps an affirmation of popular practice, to the next level. Quote, Charity and acts of loving kindness are equal to all the commandments in the Torah. Whoa! This would also arguably include the commandments relating to sacrifice. Rabbi Elazar ben Pedat, a 4th century figure in the Talmud, went even further, stating that petitionary prayer was, quote, greater than all the sacrifices. Whoa! Other sources in the Babylonian Talmud make similar comparisons between extra-sacrificial mitzvot and temple sacrifices. These sources also have analogs in the Palestinian Talmud, where it's asserted that God prefers tzedakah and justice instead of animal sacrifice, and that prayer with a ninyan of ten equals the mincha service which begs an even stickier theological matter beyond the question of equivalencies. If God is omniscient, all-knowing, wouldn't God have known the temple would be destroyed, and thus wouldn't there have been a need to replace sacrifices with something else anyway? And couldn't this succession be seen as a progression? The Babylonian Talmud briefly takes up this point, but not in the broader sense of, did God plan this, and concludes, yes, God intended to replace sacrifices. Later commentaries provided a fuller answer, yes, God intended all along to replace sacrifices with prayer, which is far superior to burning animals. According to Midrash Tanhuma, which was composed between 150 and 750 CE, even Moshe knew as much, quote, when Moshe saw with the Holy Spirit that the temple is destined to be destroyed and the first fruits are destined to cease, he immediately ordained that Israel pray three times every day because prayer is dearer to God than all the good deeds and all the sacrifices. And so we see here the culmination of a step-by-step -step progression with the rabbis slowly normalizing and elevating what had been a popular practice. First, the Mishnah, along with describing the temple rites, mentions practices not dependent on the temple. These practices, however, are not substitutes, nor are they better. They are merely mitzvot commandments. The Tosefta mirrors the Mishnah's approach, but begins to make some comparisons and correlations between tzedakah, acts of loving kindness, and other mitzvot. Post-Mishnah sources, like the Babylonian and Palestinian Talmuds, break new ground. They privilege extra-temple mitzvot. They state that an individual can achieve the goal of sacrifice through moral actions. And this notion carried us through the centuries, from the Middle East, across Europe and North Africa, and into the New World. And in the 21st century, we don't need a basket anymore. We just have to find different ways to transport the eggs. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning find this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. 
If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 241, when we continue in Second Chronicles with chapters 8 through 11.